0: You are listening to the First Tech Podcast. These podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you are not an authorised financial advisor, you may find the content of this podcast difficult to follow as it assumes you have the necessary training and qualifications to understand the concepts discussed. You should also be aware the information contained in this podcast is general information only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. Hello, and welcome to First Tech's latest news podcast for July 2022. My name is Craig Day, and I'm the head of the First Tech team, and I am joined by a panoply of people. I've got Kim Guest. Hello, Kim. Hello, Craig. Julie Fox. How are you? I almost forgot your surname. How long have I worked with you? A long time. A long time,
1: yeah.
0: Julie Fox. Bye, How are Craig. you, Julie? I'm good. And we've also got Peter Wheatland. G'day,
2: Pete. Hey, Craig.
0: Now, for those listening, I'm sitting in a room, which is unusual. Well, not sitting in a room is not unusual, but sitting in a room with my colleagues, Kim and Julie, but Pete is joining us remotely. So if you get a bit of a different sound from Pete, that's why, because he's not in the same room. All right, latest news. Now, we've got a bit to talk about this month, and I'm going to, as the boss, I'm going to exercise executive privilege and go first. And so the first thing I want to talk about is this recent announcement by the ATO that they're going to move transfer, well, sorry, not transfer, T-bar reporting, so transfer balance account reporting uh, for self-managed super funds to all funds must report on a quarterly basis from the 1st of July 2023. So... Next, this time next year, all funds need to report their T-bar events, which are both credits when we commence a pension as well as debits when we commute a pension. They need to report them no later than 28 days after the end of the month. Whereas currently, depending on the total super balance of the members of a fund, they will either be quarterly or annual which does cause a little bit of a problem when we're dealing with an annual reporter or an SMSF that's being an annual reporter and they commute and roll over to a large fund and commence a pension a large fund because the large fund will report the credit much more quickly than the SMSF will report the debit, and that does cause some problems. So what the ATO has done is in order to try and align these timeframes uh, so they're closer together, they've simply said that all super funds now from the 1st July next year, now need to report uh, no later than 28 days after the end of the month in which a a T-bar event occurs. Now, hopefully this will reduce the period of potential double counting, which I just mentioned there. So if I'm rolling out of a, you know, a commute rollout of my account-based pension sitting inside my self-managed super fund, so I might be commuting a million dollars. So let's just say there was previously a credit for a million dollars uh, and then I roll over to my, you know, a large super fund and commence a new pension for a million dollars. The ATO for potentially up to 18 months, depending on when you do this, will think that you've actually got two pensions there uh, and that you will have a T-bar or a transfer balance account value of $2 million, right, because you've got the first credit for a million dollars and then you get the second credit for a million dollars because the debit in between is not showing up potentially for 12 months down the track. Uh, And so that can cause some problems with people being issued excess determination notices, which actually aren't right because it just simply hasn't taken the debit into account yet. So hopefully that will reduce, although it's important to note there will still be a time lag between the two because large funds do need to report a credit within 10 business days whereas a self managed fund need to report by 28 days after the end of the quarter. But even at maximum, you're looking at about you know 110 days difference there. That's probably not going to be enough for, a, for the ATO to get around and issue an excess determination. So hopefully we'll resolve that problem. A couple of other interesting things, though, for me, is what this will do is clamp down on people that may have decided to start a pension in their account-based pension well into the financial year, but suspiciously, the documents show that it's actually commencing on the 1st of July, which is pretty standard. There's a lot of self managed fund pensions that get commenced on the 1st of July, and that is simply to maximise the tax-free proportion. Now, you know, that comes down to, well, when did you actually decide do you need documents to actually commence a pension? All that sort of argument goes around and around. But now, you know, if you're thinking, okay, well, let's start a pension in January, well, I can't have a pension commencement date on the 1st of July, can I? Because that will then be picked up and say, well, where was your transfer balance credit report um, that needed to be submitted by, you know, 28 days after the end of the quarter, by 28 October. Um, so that will actually require probably a, a bit more transparency in terms of people commencing pensions inside self pension funds. Now, what it means from an admin perspective, um, from what I hear, some accounts and administra- administration service providers are not that happy with this because it just means they've got to do more work throughout the year. But also on the flip side, there are other administrators that are reasonably happy because their systems are update. You know, they've got the latest systems and actually reporting. There's no reason why they couldn't report more frequently. So it probably just means all of those administrative service providers that are on old systems that, you know, potentially could handle dealing. Reporting once annually and now going to have a problem with reporting all funds quarterly. So, just have to wait and see what happens there. Um, the other changes for me relate to uh, the government's recent announcement to review the uh, Your Super Your Future reforms. Right. So you may re- recall these; these uh, came out in a couple of budgets ago. Um, and included the performance test, initially kicked off with the MySuper performance test. So we've already seen one round of those. Second round is coming out around about October this year. Um, also stapling for uh, for uh, default funds, as well as the best financial interest. Now, what the government has announced here that it's going to review these reforms because they say whenever you come out with new reforms, there's always potentially unintended consequences. So they will be reviewing the rules and I'd say focusing on primarily the performance test. So we have had one result in relation to the performance test for my super products and what they're going to do is go back there and make sure that those performance tests aren't resulting in any unintended consequences. And as a result of that, what they're going to actually do is pause the performance test that was going to kick off from this year in relation to trustee-directed products. Now, what trustee-directed products are, if you're not familiar, they're basically choice investment options or investment options within a a choice superannuation fund um, that are multi-sectoral, multi-manager type things. So any sort of investment product where the trustee of that particular fund or an associated entity has involvement in managing the fund's assets or setting the fund's investment returns. So for those particular products, uh, they were going to kick off with a performance test from the 1st of July this year with results announced. On some, sometimes I think it's the end of August or October, something along those lines. Um, that is now going to be paused. So we won't see any performance tests published for trustee-directed products this year. They're just delaying it for 12 months. They'll also be looking at the best financial uh, interests reform. Um, also, the way you read the press release, they will be looking at stapling, but they've said that they will not be removing stapling for default purposes. So they might just have a look at how it's working, probably leave it alone and mostly focus on those performance tests. So that's it for me. Now, Julie, um, we've got a new Labor government. So they were elected, you know, back on the 21st of May. What changes have we seen on the financial planning front since then?
1: Craig that's a really easy question. Um, there's been no legislative developments since the election because they haven't started Parliament yet. Uh, the new parliament doesn't actually commence until the 26th of July uh, so very shortly. So what that means is that any new legis- uh, any legislation that was in progress under the old government has now essentially ceased and we need the new government to introduce new legislation for any changes going forward.
0: Yeah, but okay, so there have been some indications of what we want to do yeah.
1: Yeah, um, there were election promises and um, the government's publicly confirmed, for example, that uh, their commitment uh, to promise to freeze deeming rates for two years, Uh, they've gone ahead with that. The lower deeming rates going to remain frozen at a quarter of a percent and the upper rate will remain at 2.25 percent until the 30th of June 2024 and they've come out with a public press release about that and that freeze is going to apply to all people receiving social security payments and of course you've talked about um, the pause on the your future your super performance test um, so those are some of the changes that we've seen so far.
0: Now, we also saw an announcement during the election campaign. Interestingly, it was initially announced by the previous government, but then supported or matched by Labor in the election campaign, and that related to downsizing contributions and reducing the age further down to 55. What's happened there?
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, they they did uh, follow um, Morrison on, on that idea of reducing the age to 55. Since the election, we haven't seen any public commitment to that measure like we did for the deeming threshold. So that's certainly not yet law. So... As it stands today, just to make it clear, uh, a downsizer contribution in this current financial year, you have to be at least age 60 at the time of the contribution. Now, that's fairly new. That was legislated to start from the 1st of July 2022. Mm -hmm. So that is in place at the moment. So it's currently age 60. We may perhaps see more developments with the pre-election promise to reduce it further to 55 when Parliament recommences or perhaps in Labor's first budget.
0: Okay. Um, Also, mentioning the budget, when can we expect that? Because they have brought it forward, haven't they?
1: That's right. So lucky us, we get two budgets in one year. Um, The new government have indicated that their first federal budget will be on Tuesday the 25th of October rather than in May, as as we usually see the federal budgets.
0: And do we have any, you know, secret squirrel kind of indication of what they're going to do?
1: Uh, I wish we did, but as usual, we don't have a crystal ball on these matters or or a a secret staff member in in Treasury or anything. (laughs) Um, But the Treasurer did warn us in late July that the economic news would be confronting when Parliament recommences, especially concerning inflation and interest rates and real wages. Uh, So the government will be definitely looking for savings in the budget.
0: Right. It's interesting, isn't it? So the last budget that we had in May, That was just before the election. And you can kind of look at that one. There's going to be lots of giveaways in that one. But always the flip side of that is you get to the new government's first budget, and that's when they want to start being nasty to people, because hopefully if they're nasty there, you've got two years to forget about it. So so we may well be looking for savings measures, especially considering... You know the world-changing last two two and a bit years, and all the spending that's gone on, and uh, the damage that's been done to federal budgets. So we may well see some um, some savings measures introduced there. Um, I suppose also important to think there that um, from a latest news perspective, we had all of those changes to the contribution cap, well changes to the contribution rules. They were announced a couple of budgets ago. They were legislated, but they're all effective now. So from the 1st of July, we've got the abolition of the work test for um, discretionary, well, voluntary contributions, so non-concessional small business CGT contributions or contributions under the lifetime CGT cap, um, personal injury contributions. We don't need to worry about a work test all the way up to 75, including 28 days after the end of the month in which you turned 75. God, I wish I just got rid of that bloody rule and just said 75. Um, So those rules are all in. Also, the reduction, I think you've just said there, Julie, of the downsizer age to 60, that is in and effective. Um, Also, what they have done is introduced a work test, however, to making personal deductible contributions between 67 and 75, including 28 days after the end of the month in which you turn 75. Um, So if you want to claim a tax deduction for a personal contribution in one of those ages, you've either got to satisfy a work test or the typical work test, 40 hours within 30 consecutive days, um, at some point during the financial year, Um, or you're able to satisfy the work test exemption. Okay, so all of those rules are in. If you want to know anything more about it, we've got lots of articles. We've even got a webinar that we ran the other day um, that we will be posting up on our website. If you want to learn all about that, go and check out our webinar. Now, Kim. Yes. we've, We've got some changes to the mutual obligation system for people receiving Centrelink payments, don't we? We do. And what do they say? Well, how are they going to work?
3: Okay, well, from the 4th of July this year, um, new mutual obligation requirements commenced for a range of social security payments, including job seeker payment, of course, and youth allowance and parenting payment and some others as well. And under this new scheme, it's called Workforce Australia, and it's replaced the previous scheme, which was called Job Active. And under this new scheme called Workforce Australia, they have actually two streams. One is an online portal called Workforce Australia Online and then there's the face-to-face service. And most people are going to use the new online portal to um, meet their mutual obligation requirements, but if they need more tailored support, they're going to be referred to this face-to-face service.
0: Right. Um, Workforce Australia, is there a gap between workforce and Australia? You know how all these new... You know how they market these things like jobs? What was oh, a yeah, job actually? They've the words together. they, don't they? The
1: words
3: together. There is a gap. No, there I is a think gap. They're two actual words. Oh, yep. Wow, words. maybe
0: we're going yeah. back to the good old days of actually having words separated by a space. <laughs> um, okay, so obviously the new scheme is different.
3: Mm-hmm. How? Uh, One of the big changes is that it's a point-based system. They call it a point-based activation system. And most job seekers are going to need to accumulate 100 points a month to be able to meet their mutual obligation requirements. So um, there's a number of activities that they can do that attract points to get to their 100 points a month. For example, if they complete a job application, they get five points. If they attend a job interview, they get 25 points. If they complete online online modules, learning modules, sorry, um, they get five points. So there's a whole list of activities um, that give you points. Um, there's some that you have to do a certain minimum number of, like um, job applications, um, to get to that 100 points a month.
0: So like frequent flyers, except you need to do the points to actually you get do. social security support. So if you don't do the points, mm-hmm. you don't get paid, you don't eat. Yes. Yes,
3: there are penalties involved if they don't meet their points.
0: Right. So 100 points, does that, you know, I'm thinking there's going to be carve outs there. Mm. Does that apply to everyone?
3: No, there certainly is. um, They can be adjusted, the number of points, depending on personal circumstances, like barriers to employment or if they have caring responsibilities or if they're ill or have a disability, different points targets can apply to different people.
0: So there is flexibility. Yeah. yeah, okay, that's good. Uh, and what about people who are 55 or older? Do they need to meet the points target?
3: Yeah, this is the question that we've been getting. Um, the, there is a points target that applies to them, but the current exceptions to the rule also apply to these people. So under the under the rules prior to this change and keeping on going now, is that people between 55 and 59 who um, met the 30-hour requirement of paid employment or self-employment, they have met their mutual obligation requirements and they don't need to look for work and all of those sorts of things. Um, For the first 12 months that you go on to JobSeeker payment, if you're between 55 and 59, you um, can meet, um, you know, that 30 hours requirement with employment and self-employment, and you can even do 15 hours of voluntary work, but only 15 of the 30 hours can be voluntary. The other 15 hours have to be paid work or self-employment. Um, after 12 months on JobSeeker payment, if you're between 55 and 59, you can actually meet the whole 30-hour requirement with voluntary work. That, that's the old rules and it's still still available now to, to meet your requirements that way. Once you're age 60, you can also um, meet your requirements by doing 30 hours of voluntary work. So um, those people who meet their mutual obligations that way um, don't need to also meet the point-based system.
0: Right. So there's they've kept the flexibility around they voluntary have. work. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That's good. All right. Thank you, Kim.
3: No worries. All right.
0: Now... God, thinking about, we're just about to talk about caps and things, but um, unless you've been living under a rock, you'd be pretty aware that inflation has been rising, right? So I was at Woolies the other day and they were selling green beans for $40 a kilo. Can you believe that? Um, So aside from, you know, inflation causing problems around what I have to pay for a plate of green beans, um, it's also impacting a whole bunch of rates and thresholds. So um, first of all, has this Pete, has this flown through to concessional or non-concessional caps this year?
2: Uh, no, it hasn't. The concessional and non-concessional caps are remaining the same, so it's still staying at $27,500 and $110,000 respectively this financial year.
0: Right, and we we don't quite know what's likely to happen next year because we have to see um, what is it? The the caps are indexed by a Wattie effectively. That's right. A Wattie is what's used to index the concessional cap, and then the the non concessional cap is a multiple of the the concessional cap. So, and we don't really know what's happening with weight. We know certainly what's happening with, with inflation. Um, but we're not so clear on what's happening with wages yet. So we don't quite know what's going to happen as at 1 July next year yet.
2: Yeah, that's right. Yeah.
0: Okay. Now, in terms of transfer balance cap, however, that's indexed by inflation, right? So transfer balance cap is that thing that says, okay, well, you can only transfer a certain amount of your retirement benefits into the tax-free retirement phase to commence a say, retirement phase income streams, such as an account-based pension. So the transfer balance cap, um, it's, in indexing increments in, uh, it's indexed in increments of $100,000, if I could speak. Um, and I remember that the transfer balance cap increased to $1.7 million on the 1st of July 2021. So tell me it hasn't, well, Great if it has, but I'm pretty sure it hasn't indexed again this
2: year, has it? No, it hasn't. Um, the general transfer balance cap still remains at 1.7 million for this financial year. Um, mm-hmm. But the reason why I wanted to talk about it is that judging by how much the CPI has increased so far, it appears very likely that the cap is going to be indexed to 1.8 million from 1 July 2023. And to put that into context, the transfer balance cap was 1.6 million for four years. And it's looking quite likely that it will only remain at 1.7 million for a total of two years.
0: All right. So transfer balance cap kicked off on 1 July 2017 at 1.6. And so it indexed for the first time up to 1.7 on 1 July 2021. So that's the four years. Mm -hmm. But what you're telling me is that it's likely to go to 1.8 next year. So that's two years to increase from 1.6, well, sorry, four years to increase from 1.7 to 1.6 to 1.7 and two years to increase from 1.7 to 1.8. Yeah. So that it's likely, so what are we basing this on?
2: Um, well, the, the CPI index number that we use to calculate the indexation is measured in December each year. Um, And in order to cause the transfer balance cap to index to 1.8 million from next financial year, the CPI index number would need to be 123.8 or larger. And we've already gone over that CPI index number um, in the March quarter of this year. And so, therefore, as long as we don't get deflation between now and December, The general transfer balance cap will be indexed to 1.8 million from next financial year.
0: So let's assume that it is going to go up to 1.8 from 1 July next year. What are the sorts of things that advisors can do there?
2: Um, It's important to remember that when it comes to the client's personal transfer balance cap, it's only the amount of the cap that they've never used before that will receive the indexation. So so if you have the client's who are looking to transfer more funds into a retirement phase income stream this financial year, let's say, um, and they're likely to be limited by the transfer balance cap at some point in the future, you should consider whether it's worthwhile to delay commencing the pension until next financial year uh, because that will maximise their personal transfer balance cap indexation. Um, Of course, advisors will need to weigh the benefit of delaying against the fact that investment earnings uh, will be subject to tax up to 15% um, whilst the funds remain in accumulation phase. And another possible strategy to consider um, is to use reversionary nominations rather than binding nominations where appropriate because um, a reversionary income stream won't start to count towards the beneficiary's transfer balance account until after 12 months from the date of death, which will hopefully be after the beneficiary's personal transfer balance cap has already increased.
0: All right. So just to make some sense of that, so you're talking about, you know, proportional indexation. So if I've previously commenced an account-based pension, then I now, what I did is the time I commenced that pension, I got the general transfer balance cap at that time as my personal transfer balance cap. So if I commenced, uh, you know, an account-based pension today, my transfer balance account is the general transfer balance cap that applies for this year. So it would be $1.7 million. But let's say I used up, let's say, I don't know, 50% of my transfer balance cap. Um, what you're saying is when I get to 1 July next year, if it does go from 1.7 to 1.8, I don't get that $400,000 worth of indexation because I've only I've already used up 50% of my transfer balance cap so I only get indexation based on my unused percentage right um so therefore I would only get $50,000 increase in my transfer balance cap but what I think you're saying there is if I delay commencing my first pension until the 1st of July then I get the transfer balance cap that applies At that time, so at that time it would be 1.8 million, assuming that it does increase. So therefore, delaying until I commence until the first of January could give me some extra money that I can move into the tax-free retirement phase. Is that what you're saying?
2: Yeah, that's right.
0: We were talking about the federal budget earlier on. I suppose, given all of this discussion, we're potentially talking about saying to people you might want to consider delaying commencing your account, account, your first account-based pension until the first of July. There is kind of a bit of a proviso here that we have a federal budget on the 25th of October, I think you said, Joel?
2: Mm-hmm. That's right. Is
0: that? uh, yep, 25th of October, I think it's due. Um, and we've got a new government that is looking for savings. So, therefore, there's always a risk here that, you know, the federal government could actually freeze indexation of the transfer balance cap. So, you know, just keep that in mind. There's always legislative risk whenever you start to apply strategies about delaying doing things because some sort of threshold will increase in future. Well, if we have a federal budget and the government comes in and says, no, you're not getting that indexation, well, you potentially just missed out on those you know, tax-free investment returns by delaying, which then you never got to take advantage of putting extra money into super. So I suppose the, the main point from this whole discussion is, well, the transfer balance cap is not changing for this financial year. It is looking likely for 1 July 2023, subject to my comment that I was just making about legislative risk. So advisors should be mindful of how transferring more money into retirement phase um, this financial year may impact upon their clients, okay? So, okay, uh, thanks, Pete. Thanks, Craig. Okay, I think that pretty much sums it up. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Craig. Great. See you,
3: everyone.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening to the First Tech Podcast. Please note these podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors as a source of general information. All scenarios considered during the podcast were purely hypothetical and for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. You should read the relevant product disclosure statement before making any investment decisions and once again, consider talking to a financial advisor. While all care has been taken in preparation of this podcast using sources We believe to be accurate and reliable, no person, including Colonial First Aid Investments Limited and Advantius Investments Limited, accepts responsibility for any loss suffered by any person arising from reliance on this information.